0: By and large, mini grid developers were guessing what value chains they might be involved in. Communities were not particularly well financed to be able to branch into new value chains or even to engage in value chains, chains that were directly involved, directly involving the businesses that they were already in. Um, And financing institutions, the donors, the multilaterals, had very little understanding of exactly how. Um, uh, DRE would be translated efficiently and effectively into productive use um, uh, financing. So the value chain assessment, we believe, is a seminal piece of work that not only helps us in Myanmar, but actually could be a model for other countries to be thinking about, well, seriously, what is required for us to be Um, getting to replicable productive use models that make a difference in terms of the local economy.
1: That was Richard Harrison, the head of Smart Power Myanmar, and this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, William Brent. In support of this year's UN Food Systems Summit, our conversation with Smart Power Myanmar is part of a special series on the critical link between food systems and decentralized renewable energy. Our goal is to shed light on game-changing ideas in Africa and Asia that can help ensure sustainable energy for all, improve farmers' lives, and support economic growth. In this podcast, Richard is joined by Smart Power Myanmar's research partner, Sam Duby of TFE Energy. Welcome, Richard and Sam. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to have you both, Um, and as the two of you are very aware, many governments and even many mini-grid companies are often flying blind when it comes to understanding where mini-grids are best located to have maximum impact for unelectrified communities, while also at the same time having enough demand from customers to be viable. In a country like Myanmar, which has the lowest electrification rate in Southeast Asia, This tension largely comes down to understanding the agricultural value chain, which accounts for 30% of the country's GDP and nearly 70% of livelihoods. So to address this knowledge gap, Smart Power Myanmar recently did some groundbreaking research to gather data that took an ecosystem view on energy access and agriculture. So Richard and Sam, I'm wondering if the two of you can sort of begin this conversation by explaining why having that view is so important and how you went about gathering data that did not previously exist.
0: Well, thanks a lot for having us on the podcast, William, today. It's a pleasure to be here um, talking about this uh, Im- important topic at a very uh, prescient time, in fact, with the recent announcements of uh, lots, lots more funding being uh, put into the distributed rural electrification space uh, globally uh, this month. Um, it, it's, it's, there's no better time to be discussing such things as ha- how do we deploy that financing, and and how do we focus on some of the thorny areas around uh, value chains and uh, productive use, which historically have been some of the uh, least successful areas, I think, in terms of, um, of of seeing actual replicable impact around the world. So so it's, it's it's definitely the era for trying to figure that particular problem out, and that was really the That was really the justification for us for um, spending a little bit of extra time and effort um, uh, in in bringing on our partners, TFE, who we worked with before uh, to help us define our strategy in Myanmar, to to ask some questions and and help us to to put together an empirical basis for future interventions that would be aimed at improving the productive use of energy um, along the value chains. And I think that um, one of the reasons that we decided to actually do a proper assessment around this was that we just came to the conclusion that there was just too much guesswork happening in the mini-grid space. Um, By and large, mini-grid developers were guessing what value chains they might be involved in. Communities were not particularly well-financed to be able to branch into new value chains or even to engage in value chains Chains that were directly involved, directly involving the businesses that they were already in. Um, and financing institutions, the donors, the multilaterals had very little understanding of exa- exactly how um, a DRE would, um, would be translated efficiently and effectively into productive use um, uh, financing. And I think also there were some uncomfortable facts that we felt needed to be uncovered. Um, First and foremost is that if you are really serious about getting involved with mini grids, which is a hard business, and if you're very serious about um, replicable models that can get to scale DRE in a particular country or or across a geography, um, you can't just build mini grids and hope for the best. You can't just um, focus on a couple of micro enterprises in a given village and hope that that is going to magically um, create a kind of a ripple effect. There will be small ripple effects, of course. Investment has to happen in the value chains writ large. Value chains are are not static um, and they are not confined to villages. They are very large ecosystems, very interconnected trees that um, stem stem from um, complex systems across the country. We need to understand that a lot better than we do in order to um, back-engineer our thinking all the way back to how are we selecting sites for mini-grids in the first place and, and what mistakes are we making um, when we're selecting mini-grid sites. So the value chain assessment that, that, um, that we commissioned and TFA, TFE has, has implemented, we believe is a seminal piece of work that not only helps us in Myanmar, but actually could be a model for other countries to be thinking about, well, seriously, what is required for us to be um, getting to replicable productive use models that make a difference in terms of the local economy?
1: That's a great answer, Richard, and uh, it's a lo- there's a lot to unpack there. Um, first, for- First and foremost, though, I think for many listeners, especially from those in the agriculture and food sector, when the, the decentralized renewable energy uh, industry, like like we're in, the DRE industry, when we talk about productive use, they don't really know what that means. So I'm wondering, before we dive into this, this deeper conversation, uh, um, to explore those uncomfortable facts that we talked about and how to get around them, can you give a very quick definition of how you define productive use?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. And um, it's, a, it's a good question because these, these terms can be um, um, a little bit, they can put people off the conversation if, they, if they're not well explained. You're quite right. Um, let, me, let me answer that question by um, illustrating with a case, case study that, that we're working on at the moment. It's a small business in the south of Myanmar, which focuses on cockles farming from, from, the, uh, from the coastal area of Tanyantari for sale to Thailand. Um, and a great example of the definition of productive use is in action there, where um, uh, about roughly the end of 2019, and this business was um, manually fishing for and processing cockles using a, a diesel generator for pumping water and for water jets for cleaning the cockles, for packaging processes, etc. With one of our partners and with uh, subsidy financing from the World Bank, we uh, helped to transform that business uh, through connection to the local mini-grid that was established there. This business is now has now converted its diesel motor uh, to an electric motor, and it is productively using electricity from the solar mini-grid to uh, transport water uh, for its businesses, uh, to power the water jets for cleaning, um, and, uh, has actually, uh, also now enabled the village itself, which I think had, if I got my numbers correctly, about 4,000 people in it, uh, 60% of that village now has piped water pumped to every house, which is, is the first time that any houses have had pipe water. So the productive use definition can be expanded to include the business itself, but also a productive use could include, um, uh, the distribution of services such as water.
1: That's great. Thanks. That's a good response. And I think it helps give us the listener a little bit better picture of what we're talking about. So I think we've all seen as, as you were alluding to Richard uh, mini grid operators deciding pretty randomly where they're going to place their mini grids. Uh, And as it relates to the agricultural and food value chain, and I'm I'm assuming this is is partly what the research that you and and Sam did together uh, gets to is, you know, how do we locate mini grids? Um, in the agricultural uh, value chain, that's often going to, to come down to what crops are central to a country's rural economy. Uh, you talked about cockles, but I, I assume cockles is probably a, a niche market. In the case of <laughs> Myanmar, my understanding is that you've got cotton, beans, pulses, oilseed, uh, et cetera. And so from your research, I'm wondering uh, if you were able to determine which crops are a fit for decentralized renewables and which aren't.
0: Well, before Sam gets uh, gets into telling us uh, more about some of the, the the really interesting findings that that um, TFE has managed to uncover as part of this, I would I would I would say um, that um, the issue of site selection is absolutely critical to this. Um, and to that end, in conjunction with this research, we've we've built something that we call the Myanmar Power Map which is an an integrated and organic site selection tool. And um, it it also helps us with demand prediction. Um, uh, And it is also a rural electrification planning tool. So beyond just site selection for mini grids, it would in theory and in practice, help engineers at the end of the grid decide where grid expansion should take place and where decentralized energy potential lies. This is extremely important because when you layer on the value chains and the crops and the solar radiation data into this map, which we've done, you're able to very quickly see where is the grid, where are the crops, where are the services, where are the roads? And you're able to uh, eliminate a lot of bad choices from your site selection and narrow down uh, better choices that might have closer links to markets, for example. So site selection... Good site selection needs a variety of different tools to come to bear to enable the developer and the investor to better understand exactly where they're putting their money and where they're going to be able to get their their business value from, in addition to making sure that the village can get sustained access to energy. And that business relationship between all of these things is really critical and is often overlooked, especially with subsidy schemes that only look to a certain number of years out from the construction date. Uh, What we should be looking at is, well, over the very long term, uh, what potential does this uh, site have? Uh, But Sam can tell us a lot more about um, some of the crops and some of the decision-making involved in, in, in that that came out of our research.
2: Yes, thank you, Richard. Um, What you're describing there uh, in terms of where the grid runs, um, where the areas of high solar radiation and everything you described is a really important aspect. And the way we looked at it is that is really the supply dimension. So what is defining the supply of energy, where there are suitable amounts of labor to process crops. But we're looking at the crops specifically, really is a way of layering on the demand dimension. So what demand for energy do the value chains of these specific crops have? And this was very much uh, part of our research, looking at prioritizing which crops, which value chains were the most suitable for um, energy access investments in Myanmar. Now, um, you mentioned earlier the um, importance of agriculture, William, to Myanmar's economy, and that's really focused in relatively small number of crops. So together, rice, beans and pulses is about 67% of the total crop value in Myanmar and about 75% of the total cultivated area. So there really is a lot of focus on a relatively small number of crops. And we can talk a lot about how diversification is key, but one of the things that we were looking at in this research is how any interventions, any well-designed projects could have a lot of scale across the country. So one of the factors that we used to pick crops was the importance of those crops to the economy at large, and also the effect that any improvements in those value chains would have on rural areas, but all the way down the value chains. Now, going deeper into the demand aspect, um, each crop necessarily has a very different energy demand across and down its value chain which typically stretches from very rural generally off-grid villages all the way down to urban areas and potentially even for export Um, and each crop has a very different energy use profile along that so one of the very early realizations that we had was that there weren't really very many methodologies for quantifying and being able to draw meaningful comparisons of this energy usage along value chains for crops. And so a lot of the work we did was developing new methodologies and developing, um, synthesizing existing methodologies to be able to make these meaningful comparisons between different crops, but also between different programs processes along the same crop value chain either higher up or lower down and one of the key things that we Centered around was this idea of value addition per kilowatt hour used so for example if you have a kilogram of unthreshed rice that has a certain value you process it through threshing, which has a certain energy cost, and then you're left with the end result of threshed rice, which is much higher value. So comparing those two values and the energy required to affect that value addition created a really... Good, tangible metric with which we could use to compare different processes either along the same value chain but also between different value chains. But what we realized very quickly, and this is really key, is that the value addition per kilowatt hour is only one aspect and it needs to be couched in much more of a qualitative understanding of the practicality of different processes. So, for example, um, cotton yarn spinning has a very high value addition per kilowatt hour but the machinery to perform that process tends to be very big tends to be very expensive and therefore it's implied that that happens further down the value chain where there is more throughput because produce can be aggregated and so it tends to be more of a on-grid or more uh, urban located uh, function whereas Rice threshing, by comparison, is something which can be done with relatively cheap, relatively small machinery and so f- is therefore much more suitable for upstream community processing at a much smaller scale, and therefore the implication is that rice threshing is perhaps more suitable for off grid community level um, energy interventions
1: so Sam, I have a question around, uh, first of all, this metric that you, you bring up, value addition for uh, per kilowatt hour
2: used. Is that
1: something that's commonly used within the mini-grid sector as a whole? And if not, should it be?
2: So we haven't found it used in a way that allows, as I say, comparison of different value chains and different processes along value chains. We've seen it done in very localized ways. So, for example, looking at what's the best crop for a community mini-grid. But in terms of comparing whole value chains, we haven't seen it. And we were really we really focused on trying to break down this on-grid, off-grid binary and trying to break down looking at very isolated, mini-grid focused solutions, because we think that to draw an accurate and meaningful uh, set of results, you need to look at the energy provision spectrum all the way down the value chains, even into areas which potentially are on-grid, but might not necessarily have a great... Grid. And what you're trying to do from this, the main result from all of the analysis was to try and find some measure of the commercial viability of electrifying that particular process in a value chain. Now, in some cases, the commercial viability was very strong, which would lend itself to one kind of delivery model. And in some cases, usually cases which are more off-grid, their commercial viability was lower, in which case we were able to quantify the viability gap or the amount of support or subsidy that would be needed to make it commercially viable. All of this leading to an articulation of what kind of delivery model, what kind of financial support, what kind Kind of technical assistance would be required to affect that um, electrification of that process
1: so so would it be cor- uh, accurate to say that what what you're essentially what you're essentially concluding from some of this research is that the more the functions that are within the ecosystem that are more focused on pre-processing like threshing are more suitable for an off-grid or weak grid type of energy solution whereas the actual processing itself that's going to require the downstream side. So the upstream side, more, more off-grid, the downstream side is bigger systems where you can aggregate, uh, and that would be more of a, a grid-based solution. So that's one question, and maybe to hand it over to Richard from there is, is Smart Power Myanmar looking at providing those energy solutions across that value chain, including the, the on-grid um, applications?
2: Certainly. So as I mentioned earlier, we really tried to break down this idea of of on-grid and off-grid because it really is a spectrum um, between these two these two poles. But you're absolutely right. Some processing, like for example, rice threshing, is more suitable simply because of its scale towards more upstream, village-level, off-grid interventions, for example, mini-grids, whereas more downstream, bigger processes like Color bean sorting or rice yarn, um, sorry, cotton yarn making. It tends to happen downstream because of the economies of scale required to to buy the machinery. Now, one really, really important realization from this is that on a on-grid factory, which might be processing yarn, for example, the Grid quality in Myanmar, as Richard alluded to earlier, is, is sometimes somewhat wanting. And so there are many cases where the grid availability is only about 60 percent or 75 percent. And so when the grid is there, the processor is benefiting hugely from the relatively low tariffs of Myanmar. But when the grid is not there, the Opportunity cost of not running their machines or of the machines sitting idle are actually huge. So actually, if you can supply them with energy, maybe from a a solar system on top of the factory, it actually makes a lot of sense for that processor to either source the power from this solar panel system that they financed on the roof or to buy it from an independent power producer, even if the cost of that energy is higher the added revenue that comes from keeping machines going more than justifies that added expense of the energy, and that was a that was a really key finding for us, um, and really was a, a good indication for why this binary between off grid and on grid really needs to be broken down.
1: Thanks, Sam. So, Richard, is is smart power Myanmar? Breaking it down, are you are you are you looking you know along that whole spectrum in terms of energy solutions? Or are you strictly focused just on, say, the mini grid piece?
0: Well, absolutely, uh, William. We're we one of the reasons we wanted to do this assessment is to understand well what, what what is the best strategy for maximizing economic uh, impact uh, in Myanmar and and places like Myanmar. Um, what is the best strategy for connecting different pieces of the value chain? Where should you emphasize? And now we're starting with with this research and with with the decentralized energy market assessment that we conducted a while back. We can put together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and and ask ourselves that question is, is there an opportunity not only to work with mini grids um, at the village level where we can move the value capture Uh, up the value chain a little bit into the village where a little bit more uh, uh, income could be um, retained by that village, uh, growing the local uh, GDP, if you like, um, by a fraction at a time. Um, But also look at perhaps um, further down that very same value chain, maybe in the township that that village uh, uh, is located near, where there could be an aggregator, for example, that requires an alternative power source, so CNI or commercial industrial solar becomes a very interesting proposition there. And I think um, in Myanmar, before the uh, before the uh, the political problems and, and the uh, the coup uh, in uh, on, that began on February the first of this year, uh, there was a great deal of interest from financing institutions uh, and developers in the CNI space. So I think. I think that that is a very interesting space, especially if you can not, not treat them as isolated pieces, but rather interconnected parts of the same uh, value chain. So mini grids can support at the village level, the same value chain moves up or rather downstream, and you can have uh, aggregators supported in different ways. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of opportunities, and this helps us to open up Uh, That strategy a little bit and ask well, okay, what's possible and and of course (laughs) the critical question is where is the financing going to come from to support that? Uh, But we there there was at least a very thriving uh, private sector interested in the CNI space and one hopes that that will come back again before too long.
1: Yeah, Richard. So you talked about um, you know the importance of of taking an integrated approach to energy infrastructure, but. I think you alluded to also in the earlier comments about the fact that this is not just about energy infrastructure; it's about good roads, it's about, you know, water availability. There's a whole ecosystem that's outside of the energy sector that requires success uh, in doing what you're doing. Um, and I guess my question is: in Myanmar, is are all the pieces necessary pieces coming together? And who's ultimately responsible for bringing them together? Are you working with other institutions, other sectors um, to try and come up with a sort of integrated development approach, not just an integrated energy approach? Or how, how, What are, are there barriers to that? What, what are you finding?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, let me give my response sort of a, a little bit um, um, minus the current impact of the coup in Myanmar, because that significantly alters the landscape at this particular moment in time. Although, of course, uh, one hopes for uh, sunnier days to come in the not too distant future. Um, but but um, looking at this from a more uh, objective point of view, um, the, the the challenge has been that the, the country is less than 50 percent electrified. Um, you know, you, you, our numbers suggest that the country is pr- the, probably about 40 percent electrified, something in that region. Uh, the numbers are very difficult to pinpoint, so everyone will come up with a different number, but it's in that region. And and of course, um, when you have uh, such a long way to go in terms of building infrastructure, um, it, it really is a challenge to pull the pieces together because the road infrastructure is um, in serious in a seriously bad state. Um, as Sam was saying, um, um, electricity access from the grid, when you have it, uh, can be as low as sixty percent. There's a lot of loss, um, and of course. Um, the economic condition of the country is, 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 um, is, is quite low. Um, and so there's an awful lot to be done. What, what we have been doing over the last three years is really trying to engage uh, very proactively with the uh, significant funding organizations that are responsible for uh, agriculture stimulation uh, and value chains and economic growth programs and what's interesting about that, and what has been very interesting is that none of those programs have any component that links to electrification. They're all operating in a very isolated manner. So we're going to focus on on, on, on this particular crop or we're going to focus on that particular region, geographic or its sectoral. But when you bring in the topic of electrification and you say, well, what if we were to twin these two strategies? What if we were to say, let's focus the resources you have for agricultural growth and, and value chain development with the resources that we can bring to bear around electrification, whether it's direct financing or subsidies. Um, wouldn't it be incredible to see if we could see how those work together? Uh, because that really would be the uh, uh, stimulating the ecosystem, uh, to coin the word that Sam was using earlier. And, and we were making good progress with that, but it, we were quite quite far away from, um, I think, getting, getting to the point where significant donor funding was going to be uh, harnessed for electrification. And I think this is a story that you could see uh, across the globe, actually. I think you see this disconnect between um, the electrification programs, um, which, by and large, you could argue, uh, do get a bit technical. They get a bit energy-focused. They're not particularly good at looking at the world in an integrated way. Uh, and then the agriculture programs, and they they all fit into their own silos. So I think what we want to see is a way to break out of those silos and bring those two together. Um, again, you know, looking at the question of resilience of uh, distributed rural electrification, you know, you know, we can see very good reasons why this would make sense to do it this way. Because the agriculture programs are all looking at resilience. They're looking at making sure that communities can hang in there and survive, especially when there are major um, uh, issues, whether they be uh, natural disasters or man-made disasters. Uh, And what we're seeing in Myanmar plays that out. Since the beginning of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, uh, consumption in Myanmar in mini-grids has doubled and, in fact, continued, continued to grow since the coup in February. Commercial connections have also doubled during that time period, which demonstrates that people treat their electrification in their villages a little bit differently from the way they treat other aspects of their, um, of their household budgets. And this is, a, this is an interesting finding that we'll be doing more work on to understand the relationship between um, uh, people's needs in communities like the ones we work in uh, and their willingness and ability to pay for that And also the net economic benefit in doing so, um, which is very, very important for us to understand. Because only through understanding that, I think, uh, can we make a very strong case why the still relatively expensive option of uh, building mini grids uh, in remote areas um, is justified. Uh, We believe there's a very strong case for that, but we do need to bring out the statistics. We do need to prove that.
1: Yeah. And I think that's why the work that you and Sam are doing together is so important for for not just Myanmar, but other countries. And I think my last question sort of gets at that. Uh, and I think, Richard, you've already alluded to some of the things that maybe you would advise other governments or many of your developers in other countries you know, about key things that they should be thinking about. I mean, one one thing that's coming across very clear to me is that there needs to be more of an integrated approach between the agricultural sector and the, the power sector, right? So that's one clear, uh, I, I would say, recommendation coming from this conversation. But I'm wondering if, if you and Sam can also maybe top line some other things that you would advise to, to governments in sub-Saharan Africa, other parts of Asia, as well as to mini grid developers in terms of you know, what they need to be thinking about differently as they proceed.
2: Yeah, I can certainly um, start on that one. Um, Just picking up on one of the points that, uh, Richard, you were making, which I think feeds quite well into this point, is this idea of the emphasis on integrated thinking and breaking down the silos between productive uses and just sort of energy-focused interventions and agricultural-focused interventions. And it's very easy, perhaps, to see how energy can... Uh, be of use to agricultural value chains. But what's also very critical to understand is that agricultural value chains and agricultural processing can be very valuable to energy provision delivery models. So, for example, a mini-grid developer, which has a good productive use angle to their program in a community, will have much greater revenues, would have a much more resilient business model. And so, actually, agriculture can support energy, but also um, energy can support agriculture. They're they're interchangeable. So, so picking up on that from a perspective of um, advice to governments is the fact that with the right enabling environment in place, with an enabling ecosystem, system, the private sector really can do much of the heavy lifting with regards to rural electrification, with regards to laying the foundations for rural industrialization. They really just need to have the conditions in place for the the ability to, to thrive. And part of that is a little bit more of a nuanced understanding of how support can best be tailored to different delivery models of energy at different points along the spectrum. So we've talked about the mini-grid case, but also um, there are different support structures which are relevant for mini grids as there are for the cni models that um, richard mentioned earlier so whereas subsidies and technical assistance might be more appropriate to mini grids things like building the capacity of commercial banks and financiers to get into financing the excellent looking uh, business models of cni commercial providers can have a huge impact on the ecosystem of uh, independent energy producers at the grid edge. So that's a very different, much more commercially focused um, response that will lead to more integration, more penetration, more installation of renewable energies. But that's much more of a policy led thing um, and much less of a technical assistance and, and rural uh, support led thing. But both governments need to be able to understand that the interventions are different along different, different points of value chains and at different points of the, of the spectrum so that'd be one piece of advice
0: i think that's uh that's very prescient and uh you know um the 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 governments themselves um are the ones who are interfacing with uh also international donors who bring to bear um you know their 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 uh projects in in different uh, project areas different sectors uh, i think the the governments could um probably uh play a stronger role in, in not having these separate discussions around agriculture and energy. Uh, it's, it's fascinating when, when you go to a different department and you say, uh, or, 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 of, of, of say the Ministry of Agriculture, and you say, well, look, we're, we're really interested in the energy component of this agriculture um, uh, initiative. And the response you get is, well, we, we don't deal with energy. That's a different department. Um, and then you go to the energy people and they say, well, you need to talk to the agriculture people. It's exactly the same with the donors, in fact, who say, well, we don't actually have an energy program and you have to turn it around and say, well, actually, we're not really talking about energy per se, because the assumption is that the energy is already going to be there. What we're talking about here is how are you going to use that energy? How could you use that energy? Which goes back to, I think, the beginning of this podcast where we were uh, coming up with a definition for productive use. It, this is all about productive use. It's productive use of energy. It's great if we're turning on the streetlights, but it's fantastic if we're powering electric motors.
1: That's a, it's all really well said. Thanks both to Sam and Richard. I, I guess one before we wrap up real quick, um, in terms of the, the site selection power mapping tool that you guys both talked about earlier, is that available to other governments and to mini grid operators? Is it an open source tool that you've created or is that going to be available or accessible to others who might want to take advantage of it? It will
0: be. It's not currently um, uh, for various reasons uh, to do with its current stage of development. But uh, we are currently using the Myanmar Power Map for uh, some aspects of site selection. Uh, it, It is already in a very advanced phase. Uh, and has been successfully used in our current uh, financing uh, programs where we are building a um, microfinance initiative to support uh, last mile connection to the grid. And so through using the Myanmar Power Map, we're able to predict where substations are going to be over the next several years. We're able to forecast where the grid is going to expand to within limits uh, and, and select communities that can then be uh, uh, Approached by microfinance institutions for uh, last-mile financing. So th- th- this is an example of what Sam was just alluding to, which is the the need for innovations in finance uh, as well. And the, and the Myanmar Power Map uh, will be used for things like that. Be used for uh, developers who are making proposals, for example, to governments or to financing institutions or banks, where they're able to say, well, we've selected these twenty sites. Um, Not not just because we looked at Google Maps and made our best guess, um, but because we actually had full access to to this power map, which gives us a very complete set of data, everything you need to know in order to make a decision. What we're what we're doing now is we're adding a site selection algorithm uh, into our Myanmar power map, which will even go further and enable a developer to go in and plug in certain criteria uh, that they're interested in. And the map itself, um, using machine learning, will be able to narrow down all of the village sites that will be meeting those criteria, um, taking into consideration the future growth of the grid. So it's a very nimble organic tool. The In its ideal state, it's designed so that engineers at the end of the line can actually update the map using handheld devices so that Every time they build a, a new pole they can put that data point in their smartphone and it uploads um, uh, to the Myanmar power map and it becomes an integrated uh planning tool for on grid and off-grid electrification at scale so yeah um yeah it 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 will be available uh it's not currently available but um i uh if people want to reach out to me and um, get a demo of the Myanmar power map we are offering demos uh, on a case-by-case basis, um, and we are making it accessible to some.
1: Well, I'd love to get a demo. So sign me up, <laughs> Richard. Um, so, so, um, so thanks to both of you. I think it, this conversation's been really thought-provoking as it relates to uh, sort of the the technical, financial, and, and policy aspects of, of the mini-grid space. But I think it's also been really eye-opening. I hope for the listeners uh, about what's going on in Myanmar. I think, you know, markets like India, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, these are countries that have traditionally been the focus of discussion around mini-grids. But I think what, we, what, we, what we're hearing very clearly is that there's a lot of cutting edge work that's going on in Myanmar that needs to be better understood and better uh, communicated to the broader community. So I want to thank you both for taking time to have the conversation. Uh, Sam Doobie of TFE Energy and Richard Harrison of Smart Power Myanmar, thanks to you both.
0: Thanks for having us, William.
2: Thanks, William.
1: Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you receive alerts for future episodes. And while you're at it, subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well. Also, a reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news, analysis, and data on our website, powerforall.org, and our platform for energy access knowledge known as PEAK. And if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to Power for All to support our work to end energy poverty faster, you can do so from our homepage. In the meantime, if you have any ideas for a podcast, please email podcast at Bye for now.